today. So Jesus, I do pray for each one of us here, pray for you and the kids in the back room. I pray that you would keep us all safe from the evil one. Um, your promises that the angels, your angels surround those who fear you, do you deliver us? Uh, your promises that uh, greater is you in us than, than uh, the one who's in the world. But so Jesus, I pray that in our thoughts and even some of those deepest thoughts, I pray that you would guard us from the evil one and the ways in which he plants lies inside of us, and especially the lie that you can't be trusted. So would you protect us uh, from the evil one? Would you protect our children, our neighbors, our friends, our parents, our siblings? Jesus, we, that's what we pray for. Uh, and as we even look in your word this morning, um, help us to hear your Holy Spirit and see and hear what you want us to see and hear. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I started off with, I, had this, I said this statement over here, uh, that it seems arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to God. And I had this coexist sticker up there, and you might have seen that on cars, where the whole theory of that sticker with all the different world religions represented is, can't we just tolerate each other and say that all roads lead to the same God? Um, but, of course, we know the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus wouldn't have this bumper sticker on his donkey or whatever. But so it can seem arrogant to say that all roads lead to God. But then last week I said this. Or, yeah, last week I said it seems unfair to say that Jesus is the only way to God. And this, the map that's on your purple sheet or whatever is a map of currently the parts of the world and what, what world religions dominate those areas. So the blue is the part where Christianity dominates. And again, that's... Just because Christianity dominates there doesn't mean that Christians are there. You know what I'm saying? A place can be Christian but not have Christians. But so it seems unfair then. Like I said, when you look at your map, you got the greens, the yellows, the purples, the oranges. Those are people who weren't born into even a Christian culture. So it seems like you could say, is it kind of unfair that somebody born in New Delhi, India, as opposed to somebody born in Seymour, Indiana... Is that is God giving is God an equal opportunity God? So we talked about that some last week, but today I want to talk about this is the, the last practical to say that Jesus, the exclusiveness of Jesus. But here's the last thing I'm going to make is it seems impractical to say that Jesus is the only way to God. I mean, there's a lot of people in the world. There's a lot of unreached people in the world. There's a lot of jungle tribes. There's a lot of cultures, and it's kind of impractical to say that that ever, that Jesus is the only way to know God for all these people in every country and every, you know, blue country, green country, orange, yellow, whatever colors are on the map, but also people that are isolated or have been isolated from Christian, any kind of influence. There are people in the world that have never even heard the name Jesus, right? So it seems impractical that all those, you know, so arrogant, maybe unfair, Maybe a little impractical to say that Jesus is the only way to know God. Aren't there other ways and et cetera, et cetera, all right? So this is the last week of a series where I'm talking about Jesus wants us to wake up. And we've talked about different cultural issues. The last three weeks we've been talking about the exclusiveness of Christianity and how that can be a real offensiveness to uh, our culture today that Jesus is the only way to know God. Because, again, it can sound arrogant. It can sound impractical or unfair. And what I've said in past weeks in saying that, we are not saying that we are right. We are saying we believe Jesus is right in what he said, is right in what he said. So, it's a, um, But here's the, things, uh, here's the things that Jesus said. Let me go to the next slide here. So there's three different statements I'm going to look at today. And this is, again, we're talking about, okay, 
not only arrogant and unfair, but now it, the practicality and how does Jesus supposed to reach some of these people that are way away from civilization, all right? So there's three different statements we're going to look at today because everything on all these issues, whether it's exclusivity, exclusivity of uh, the, the gospel, whether it's the GLBTQ issues, whether it's white privilege, whether it's racism, the bottom line issue I think I've said in all these things is that we, we trust Jesus. So we have to ask, what, is, what's, what does Jesus say about these things? Not what do we think the Bible should say, not do we hope what the Bible says. What does Jesus say on these issues? Because that's the foundation of all. We're, we're, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. We don't follow, like, good thoughts. We follow Jesus. So we've got to figure out what does he say. So there's three slides we'll look at today, and then we're going to talk about some things about how Jesus being the only way to God. So first one is this. Jesus said this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So he said that to the disciples the, night, the last supper. Um, it's pretty clear here that Jesus sees him as the exclusive way to know God. He doesn't seem to allow any wiggle room in this, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. No one can come to the Father except through me. So it seems like he's saying about himself, he is the exclusive pathway to God. And I think I said a few weeks ago, there's one way to God through Jesus, but there's many ways people have gotten to Jesus. So, but there's only one way to know God, According to Jesus, you, you can think otherwise, but you can't back it up with what Jesus said, all right? So that's the first passage. Second passage is this, and this, Jesus says this, and the good news, he's talking about his own good news, the only, good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. So, and there's other times where Jesus talks about all nations throughout the world. You might even know, you know, the uh, Great Commission, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every people. So Jesus also had this bedrock belief that what he was talking about, the kingdom of God, the life with God through Jesus, was an all-world kind of thing. It wasn't just Israel. Like I said, in those days, if we had a map of, of uh, what's going on color-coded, Israel would have been blue. Israel was the only blue zone. It was the only place where God's people supposedly were. But Jesus is making this statement of saying that no, the, the gospel is going to go throughout the whole world and all nations. So Jesus clearly believed that uh, what he had, what he came to communicate and what he was going to do and his role in the world wasn't just, I'll call it the blue zone. It wasn't just Israel or it wasn't just the blue zone. He clearly understood, there was, there was probably like six or seven passages where he talks about all the world, all nations, all people. We started off the passage this, this morning, this, the the service this morning talking about the gathering in heaven of every, people from every tribe, nation, and language. So the Bible clearly teaches, and Jesus clearly believed, that his message was an everybody kind of thing. It wasn't a, for those people, it's like I said, I said a couple weeks, I think I said last week, I had a friend of mine who told me, Jesus is the way for me to know God. And he says it exactly that way, because he said it may not be the way for other people. Well, again, that's not what Jesus seemed to think. He, he clearly would say, no, this is, I am the way, all right? So that's the second passage. The third passage is this, and this is where I'll jump off of this one. This is kind of an interesting one. So this is, let me give the context of this. Jesus is talking to Jewish people, um, many of whom didn't, weren't sure they wanted to follow him. They were confused about who he was. They were angry at him because he didn't fit what they thought was supposed to happen. And, of course, Jewish people would say, we're all children of Abraham, you know, therefore... Since they were of Jewish descent, Abraham being the, 
father of the Jewish nations. We're all children of Abraham. We're, we all got free passes to heaven, right? We have free passes to life with God. And Jesus was challenging this. Just because you, that shows Abraham's your father doesn't mean you get a free pass. Because Jesus, like we said uh, previously, he's looking for faith. But he says this, so your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Now, just stop and think about this for a second. Maybe you don't know, but Abraham would have lived, I don't know, 1,500 years before Jesus. But Jesus is saying, Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. It was like, but Jesus, you, I mean, last I read the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't show up to Abraham. Right? So what was he saying? I mean, he was, he was making a comment to them about Father Abraham and things like that, but he's also saying something else that Abraham knew something. He looked forward to the coming of Jesus, but there's nothing in the Old Testament that tells us Abraham believed there was a Messiah coming someday because that wasn't even part of the equation yet. But it seems like what Jesus is saying here is that there's there was something wired into Abraham like there is into every human heart that, that knows there's something to be expected that will bring in the kind of life we've always wanted, which the Bible calls the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying, Abraham, if I can paraphrase, Abraham knew something else was out there and when he followed the call of God. Because when Abraham started following God, there was no organized religion. There wasn't even an Old Testament. God just told Abraham, get up and go. So he responded to something he heard from God, but something else wired inside of him was knowing there was something bigger out there, something about God, and we have no record of Abraham talking about Jesus, but yet he maybe wired into his heart, maybe wired into every human heart. We're going to talk about that today because the Bible talks about there's something wired into all of us that God's created us with. So uh, we're going to look today at, at what about people, as I said it's important, what about people who have never heard of Jesus in the world? What does God do with them? Not just people that don't believe in Jesus or heard of him but don't believe, but they've never heard. So I, I'm going to refer to a lot of things today from a book. Go to the next slide. So you can't really see the picture too well, but there's a missionary by the name of Don Richardson. He wrote a book called uh, Eternity in Their Hearts, and I had the book with me. I've read it before, and I was rereading it recently just for this. So he was a missionary in uh, what was then, what is now, I guess. It's uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, that area. It's a missionary. Uh, he went as a missionary to uh, a cannibalistic tribe, actually. Um, and they mass conversions and things like that. But, of course, the tribe had never heard of Jesus. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a written language. But what he did, he was also an anthropologist. He kind of researched a lot of different missionary experiences with tribes that had never heard of Jesus, never heard of Christians, some never seen a white person, let alone had a Bible. And what he found was to him fascinating about there was something written in the hearts of those individuals in those tribes that recognized something about God that was looking forward to something they didn't know, kind of like Jesus talked about Abraham. All right, and it's, I mean, there's like tons of footnotes. It's all been researched and things like that. But I'm just going to give you a couple of, some examples of this. Because again, what I'm trying to help us see is that um, God's pretty smart. And there's people, you know, a lot of times 
I was just talking to someone the other day. It was a, another Christian, but they were talking about a friends of theirs. They were trying to talk about Christianity, and the response always is, yeah, but what about those people in Papua New Guinea you haven't heard? That, they, Jesus can't be the way for them. They, it's not fair, but not practical. All right. So uh, this book is called Eternity in Their Hearts. It's a great book. It's just fascinating to read about things like that. So, but let me just start with it, all right? So first slide. So in uh, South America in the 1400s, uh, there was a, uh, the Inca tribe, um, and I think they're one of the famous uh, architectural things. It's called, is it called Machu Picchu? What's it called? Machu Picchu, whatever. Some kind of famous kind of ancient architecture. But uh, they had a name for a god, Viracocha, and it was, they believed that that god was a single creator god who was powerful over all things. And it was built into their cultural heritage. So there was a, there was a ruler of the Incan people, uh, Pauchachuti, and it said he came, this was all research because they talked to him later, he knew, they, they worshipped the sun god, but he knew there had to be something greater than the sun god because his father had told him about this Veracocha god. And his father actually had a dream where God told him, and I'm going to say God because this name was their name for the creator God of all the universe, where God told him that he was the creator of all things. And this, this uh, leader of the tribe actually said that we know this God, he's somewhere in our cultural heritage, he is ancient, he is remote, he is supreme, he is uncreated. And they knew there was something out there that was bigger than just the sun god or the moon god and all these other gods. And it was amazing as they interacted with them and shared the gospel with them, things kind of fell in place for this native tribe. I mean, this was, this was back in the 1400s. But this was obviously in a place, I mean, it's in a blue zone now, but it was, they were totally un... They didn't have a Bible. How, how in the world from times gone past in their ancient folklore was there a concept of a single creator God who actually talked to people, and they were prepared. They knew something, all right? That was the Incas, all right? Next one. Uh, there was a Santal people in Calcutta, India, and they had a name, uh, Takur Jew, and it meant the genuine God. That was part of their, they, they worshiped other gods, but they, there was always this sense of, no, we, we know there's a supreme God out there. And there's these missionaries that came in 1860. This tribe had never been interacted for by white people. Um, there were some Danish missionaries in 1867. They discovered this whole, uh, the Santal people, two and a half million of them. And there was one guy in the tribe who, when he heard the missionaries saying what they came for, this is what he told the tribe. What these strangers are saying must mean that Takur Jur has not forgotten us after all these years. And they knew, because Takur Jew was their name for the almighty creator God who wanted to know people. But they didn't know how to know him. So when the missionaries come and these, uh, this one tribesman had said, well, this stranger's telling us something. We, we don't know. And, and one of these tribes actually would have these uh, ropes around their wrists and somebody asked them, why do you have the ropes around the wrist? Well, because we are enslaved to, and it was their name for Satan. We are enslaved to Satan. We know there's a greater God, Takur Jew, but we don't, know how to, we don't know how to know him. 
and we need him to set us free from, this, from Satan. I mean, it was just like they had never had a Bible before, they had never had missionaries before, and they never had white people there. But what this stranger is saying must mean that Takujur has not forgotten us after all this time. All right? Next one. In Ethiopia, 1948, the Gadao people had a name, Magano, which meant the omnipotent creator of all. There was a man in the tribe that had a vision. And again, it's, there's footnotes, it's all back. He had, he had a vision about these white people that would come to their village and would bring them a message from God. Actually, the, what this one tribesman heard in this vision was, these men will bring you a message from Magano, the God who you seek. Eight years later, exactly what this tribesman saw happen in his vision happened. These two white guys come in there. They, they're doing the things he saw in his vision. Even the hut they had was built the same way. They were, uh, this is 1948, and because they had been prepared for the message, when these guys started explaining to them the message from God is he has a son, his son loves you. And there were 200 churches over the next couple of years started in that area because they had in their tribal lore, there's a God who's supreme over all things who wants to know people. They just didn't know. I mean, there was one tribe that actually when the missionaries came in, they said to the missionaries, are you the white people that are going to bring us the book from God? It's like, where does that come from? A few more. Central African Republic, 1920s. Uh, the Mabaka people had a name, Koro. It was their name for God. Um, they, didn't, they didn't, it was just in their part of their tribal religion, but Koro was the uh, creator God, the God of all. Um, anthropologists refer to this as sky God. A lot of these tribes have what they call the sky God, which is the single creator God who controlled the universe. And it was amazing how many of these uh, unreached tribes had a concept of a sky god, a single creator god who wanted to know people, but they didn't know how to know him. All right? So in uh, 1920, a missionary, Eugene Rosenau, came among these people and was just amazed. Because all these missionaries trying to figure out, how are we going to explain the gospel to people? They don't have any. Everybody believed they were all worshiping other idols and gods and things like that. But this is what this is uh, what one of the uh, tribesmen said to the missionary about what they believed about Koro. And I'm just going to read straight from the book here. Koro, the Creator, sent word to our forefathers long ago, long ages ago, that He has already sent His Son into the world to accomplish something wonderful for us mankind. Later, however, our forefathers turned away from the truth about Koro's Son. In time, they even forgot what it was that he accomplished for mankind. Since this time of the forgetting, in quotes, successive generations of our people have longed to discover the truth about Coral's son. But all we could learn was that the messengers would eventually come to restore the forgotten knowledge to us. Somehow we also knew that the messengers would probably be white-skinned. In any case, we resolved that whenever Coral's messengers arrived, we would all welcome them and believe their message. It's like, where does that come from? I mean, God's pretty creative, right? Two other ones. Uh, Shang-Ti is Chinese. It predates uh, Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism. And archaeologists and historians say this. Shang-Ti is the, is the Lord of heaven. And again, it's the Chinese concept for uh, 
this all-creator God. This, I don't know Chinese, but I believe when I read this, the Chinese figure for righteousness, you know, I'm not going to put it on the screen, literally is the, is, is two different elements. It's a lamb and it's me. And what the, the term righteousness actually refers to is the lamb over me. That's what righteousness means. Where does that come from in an ancient Chinese culture? Maybe God's pretty creative about keeping his, if I can say this, foot in the door, right? So, uh, and they said that it's historians know that this single creator God in China, the Lord of heaven, precedes Confucius, Taoism, Buddhism. Uh, the last one, uh, Hananim, is the great one. Uh, goes back centuries, if not millennia, in Korea. Tradition tells them that Hananim had a son that desired to live among people. And when, so when they heard the gospel, when they had missionaries come to them, they kind of were already prepared for it. And now, if you know much about Korea today, especially South Korea, there's millions of Christians in Korea today. So there's this, there's this, and then 90%, go to the next slide, 90% of all tribal religions have some concept of a single creator God. Where does that come from? All right. even, even, in, even in Hinduism and Buddhism both, they, there's some traditional belief that someday a God will come back as a human to show them God. Now, granted, I'm not saying the Hindu gods are the same as... But there's some way where Islam... In the, in, the, in the Quran, I remember I was meeting with a guy who was a Muslim. Uh, he was a professor at IU, but on the board at the local Muslim, Muslim center, they call it. And I said to him, um, does Jesus show up in the Quran? And he goes, oh, yeah. The Quran says Jesus will come back at the end of time. I said, what about Muhammad? Oh, no, Muhammad doesn't come back, just Jesus. I was like, I said, what does it say? What's Jesus going to do? He said, Quran doesn't say. It just says he comes back. So it's like God kind of plants these little clues about himself. Even in the world religions that have gone wrong and gone to idolatry, uh, 90% of the world religions have some concept of a creator God. Some have a concept of, of a, a missing book. And it's like, so God's pretty creative about these things. So here's a couple passages I'm going to look at that we'll finish with, all right? Go to the next one. So this is in Acts, when Paul is talking to people. He says, in the past, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, but he has never left them without evidence of himself and his goodness. So whether it's the people in South America or Calcutta or Ethiopia, I mean, Paul's saying, which is true, God never leaves himself without evidence of himself. Romans 1 we're even told that no, nobody, no human being on the whole earth has an excuse because they can know God, they can see God in creation. But God will never leave himself without evidence. So if, if somebody in Calcutta or Ethiopia or 1400s Incan culture, God doesn't leave them without evidence of himself and his goodness. And then the other passage is from Ecclesiastes. If God has made everything beautiful in his own time, he has planted eternity in the human heart. So, not just us, but maybe the 
Incan people in 1400 and the people in Calcutta in the 1800s, different tribes, that God's planted eternity in our hearts. There's something in us, if I could say it this way, we have a homing device for God because God created us in his image. Not just Christians in Midwest America, but people in all parts of the world. So when God says, if you seek me, you'll find me with all your heart, that's true not just for people in the Christian world, but wherever, they, wherever people are, if they seek the true God, the God of heaven, the creator God, God promises they will find him in, in spite of their religions, cultural or world religions. So when he says that, that he's planted a turn in the human heart um, all around the world throughout history, uh, no one will have... No one will be able to say to God, it wasn't fair, I had no chance of knowing you. Because God says, no, you, everybody has eternity in their hearts, promises if you seek, you'll find. So two things I'll conclude with, this first thing. Jesus is Lord over all. I've said that the last number of weeks. Jesus uh, was not saying he was just Lord over Jewish people. He's not saying he's just Lord over Christian people. He's not saying he's just Lord over Western American, Christian, or, you know, Western culture people. Jesus clearly believed he was Lord over all. And I say that, and I, I'll say this again. I, I know I've said this a number of times. I think the reason that's important to kind of grasp onto is if Jesus isn't Lord of all, then I have and you have a little wiggle room not to totally obey him. Well, if he's not Lord of all, he's just Lord of us American Christians, Midwestern kind of white people, then, yeah, I'll believe him and trust him, but I don't have, maybe I don't have to trust everything because I... What about other religions? All right? But if he's Lord of all, then when Jesus says, forgive your enemies, do good to those who hate you, when he talks about generosity, when he talks about carrying your cross, when he talks about denying yourself to find life, then if he's Lord of all, then all that he says is true. All right? So Jesus is Lord of all. But the second thing, and the last thing we'll finish with today is this. Uh, God has put eternity into your heart. When there's something in every human heart that longs for the kingdom of God. I don't mean heaven after we die. I mean the kingdom of God, which is where justice prevails, goodness prevails, generosity prevails, forgiveness prevails. So anytime when you feel like the world is messed up, it's eternity in your hearts that's telling you that. Because everybody has eternity in our hearts, whether it's tribesmen in the Incan culture of 1400 or Calcutta, or in 2021, Bloomington, Indiana. We all have a sense of God and him, him, him calling to us and us responding to him. So, uh, like I said, this, it's a fascinating book, but again, it's, it's mainly because I want, people, I want us all to understand, and it's been good for me even this week when I think about all these things. It's like, no, Jesus is Lord of all. He's not just Lord of the church in America. He's not just Lord of, you know, the Catholic Church or the church in whatever country you're talking about. He's not just Lord over Christians. He's Lord over all, and he claims that title for himself. And uh, he knows exactly how to reach whoever he needs to reach. And um, so people here, people far, people past in history, God, he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and we'll finish with this. Uh, this is another passage where it talks about every tribe and language. It's in Revelation 9. Revelation, again, is a set of visions that John had about the future. But he says this, After this I saw a vast crowd 
too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language, all right? Every nation and tribe and people and language. Right? Every nation, people, tribe, and language. Even tribes and languages that have not been discovered or written. The Bible seems to indicate, or doesn't seem to, it does indicate, there'll be people around the throne from those tribes because somehow God found them and Jesus found them. All right, every nation, every tribe, and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne from the Lamb. They were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So there's not just going to be Americans in, in heaven, of course we know that, but there'll be people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every language group that hasn't even been written down today. God knows exactly how to find those people. The blood of Jesus knows how to cover those people in ways we don't fully understand. We believe we can only know Jesus. We can only know God through Jesus. Jesus said that himself. And his cross did, his death on the cross and his resurrection opened up this new way for us, but it opens a new way for everybody because Jesus knows exactly how to find people he needs to find. So we're going to, we take communion every Sunday at, at, at Exodus, and uh, Aaron's going to come up. He'll lead us in another song. And uh, here's how we do it at Exodus. So come on up and just, uh, we don't dismiss by rows. You come up, and uh, we have two options. You can either take a wafer and dip it in the cup, or you can take a prepackaged wafer juice package and uh, take it back to your seat. Um, but even in some of the I'll call it some of the mysterious we don't fully understand how God reaches people in Papua New Guinea but yet we know this has to be central to them being reached somehow the cross and Jesus is, a cent, is the central part of that it's not uh, so that's why we do communion every week it's central to all we do it's central to us having new life so I want to pray, and then we'll sing, and then we'll take. So Jesus, we are grateful that you, the Bible says, you open up this new and living way for us to know you. And we know there are people around the world who are hungering to know you. And Jesus, we're, we'll, we'll pray that you will show, them, show yourself to anybody who's seeking you to now, to today. Whether it's here, whether it's other parts of the world, whether it's in parts of the world where people have never even heard your name before. I pray that through your spirit, you will show them yourself and draw them to you um, through the Holy Spirit. But all because, Jesus, you were obedient to death, even death on a cross. You're exalted to the highest place. And by taking this juice and this bread into our bodies, we honor you as the only way to know God in the ways that are life-giving and brings us life and peace and joy and hope. So we're grateful, and we take this today in great gratitude to you, Jesus, for all you have done, are doing, and will do in our lives. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.